Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. We've spoken of the ways we get lost in the defilements of the mind and lost in all the stories we create in our minds. And also how through understanding, how through investigative wisdom, we can begin to cut through the spell of delusion, the spell of ignorance. So tonight I'd like to speak about one other of the factors of enlightenment. And these are qualities of the mind the Buddha spoke of, the factors of awakening, which he said all lead the mind or incline the mind towards Nibbana, towards liberation, towards freedom. The particular factor I'll speak of tonight, the Buddha spoke of as being the root of all accomplishments. It's the source of fulfillment of our aspirations. And in the many lists of the Buddhist teachings, you know, there are, there are endless lists. This particular factor occurs more times than any other. So I'm hoping to build the suspense here. <laughs> the root of all accomplishments fulfills all our aspirations, is spoken of more frequently than any other factor. The Pali word <laughs> for this quality is virya. And we can get a sense of the many nuances of this mind state from the various ways it's been translated into English, because it hasn't been translated in just one way. So virya, it means and has been translated as energy and effort, as courage, as strength, as vigor, as vitality, as perseverance, as persistence. So when we put all of these characteristics together, you know, in energy and effort and courage and strength and vitality and vigor and perseverance, you can get some sense of the amazing power that comes when this factor of enlightenment, this particular factor of mind, is cultivated and developed. But it's also important to realize that virya is what is known in the Buddhist psychology as a variable mental factor. And that means it can be associated either with wholesome or unwholesome states. And we all know that people can use their energy and make effort for things that are harmful as well as things that are for the welfare of beings. And even when the motivation is wholesome and we're using virya, we're using this energy 
for a good and skillful purpose, we still need to investigate it further because how we use it, how we apply it, needs to be done skillfully. So this is some of the things I'd like to talk about this evening. In the, bo- in the most basic meaning of virya, uh, we could think of it as energy. That is, the capacity we have for activity, the capacity to do something. And this energetic capacity manifests in several different ways. It manifests as the quality which shores things up. You know, in the example, it's like reinforcing a levee in a time of flood. You know, there's a shoring up, a strengthening, or a shoring up a building, you know, that might be falling down. It's that quality of lending strength to something. On the spiritual journey, when we use virya, when we apply virya on the spiritual journey, we link it with other wholesome factors. So we link it with mindfulness, we link it with equanimity, we link it with wisdom, with investigation. And it serves to shore up or to strengthen the wholesome factors within us. Everything that's wholesome or good or skillful in our hearts, when we cultivate virya, it supports those things. It shores them up so that the skillful qualities within us that we've developed are not lost and not diminished. This is a very significant point, and the Buddha emphasized it in one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses, and he said something very uh, direct and applicable to us in our lives as lay people. He said, when we practice the Dharma, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, it wanes. So this is something very important to understand. Wisdom is not something we get and then store someplace within ourselves. If wisdom is not continually growing and being supported, then the defilements begin to reassert themselves. This is the function in our practice and in our lives of virya. It keeps the wholesome forces, it keeps the wisdom we have growing. I'd like to read something from... an ancient Korean Zen master. He was one of the kind of founders of Korean Zen. His name was Shinul. And he speaks just to this point. He says, Beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. Although coming into this life, we may suddenly awaken to the fact that our self-nature is originally void and calm and no different from that of the Buddhas. These old habits are difficult to eliminate completely. 
Consequently, when we come into contact with either favorable or adverse objects, then anger and happiness blaze forth. Our adventitious defilements are no different from before. So even after moments of genuine realization, moments of awakening on one level or another, still these old habit patterns are formidable. And so we need continuing practice. We need this quality of virya to keep our wisdom growing, to become more complete. It is virya, this energy, which keeps us on the trajectory of awakening. It shores up and strengthens what is wholesome within us. So that's one aspect of this faculty, shoring up, strengthening our energy. There's another aspect that very powerfully engages us in our lives on this journey of liberation. And that is Virya's manifestation as courage. It's interesting, in English, the word courage is derived from the Latin word for heart. And we can really understand courage as being a strength of heart. And this is a quality that's tremendously important, you know, as we walk along this path. Steve, the other night, in his talk on the defilements and the hindrances, mentioned one that we're very familiar with, uh, sloth and torpor. You know, and we usually understand that as being the dullness and sleepiness and heaviness of mind. But there's another meaning of sloth and torpor, which goes very deep. It's a very deeply ingrained habit pattern. And that is the habit of retreating from difficulties. You know, in the face of difficulties, the tendency to retreat from them. That's another manifestation of sloth and torpor. The nature of courage, the nature of virya, is exactly the opposite. Courage is energized by challenges. Courage is inspired by difficult tasks. Courage actually seeks out what is difficult because it, it rises to the challenge. With this courageous aspect of virya, this courageous aspect of energy, we rise to the different challenges on our path for the sake of accomplishing what we most value. When virya is well-developed, and it's a factor that can be practiced just like anything else, just like mindfulness, just like equanimity, it's a quality of mind that we can strengthen. When virya is well-developed, it's undaunted by the thought of hardship. It doesn't shirk from it, it doesn't shrink back from it or it doesn't shrink from the length of an undertaking. 
Now, this quality is exemplified, or the perfection of it is manifest, of course, in the life of the Buddha and his life as a bodhisattva aspiring to Buddhahood. So what I'm going to read is just the very famous, famous declaration of the bodhisattva. You know, it's really the lion's roar of courage. This is before his attainment of enlightenment. He said, let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my blood dry up. I will not give up until I have accomplished what can be done by human effort and endeavor. That's planting the flag. <laughs> you know, and it's said that on the light of his, the night of his enlightenment, he sat down with the firm resolve that he would not get up, up from his seat until he had attained perfect enlightenment. Just imagine coming into the room, <laughs> sitting, I'm not getting up. Well, <laughs> fortunately, he was enlightened that very evening. <laughs> You know, so we may hear this, kind of this strong declaration of courageous energy and think, yes, that's kind of determination, you know, is fine for a bodhisattva, for a Buddha to be, but it may seem very far away from what we feel that we could do. And it's true, we may not yet have that level of resolve of the bodhisattva. But still, there are many examples, you know, of people expressing great valor and great courage in pursuit of their goals. And sometimes it's in very individual ways, and sometimes it's in ways that affect the whole world. A few months ago, I was having a conversation with a staff member at IMS in Barry, at our center. He's actually our IT guy. Turns out that he's still a pretty young guy, but in his younger days, he was in the Army. And he was actually in a, some Army base in Southern California. And he was describing to me a time while he was still in the Army when he volunteered to run in a marathon, and the way the army runs the marathon, 26 miles, it was with a full gear, 35-pound pack, running 26 miles. So I heard this, and that's impressive. <laughs> and I, I was interested in, like, what motivated him to do this? You know, this was a pretty intense thing to do. And he said that he just wanted to face his mind in extreme circumstances. And he just wanted to put himself in this most extreme kind of physical circumstance and see what his mind did with it. And he said that at about mile 13 or so, full pack, 35 pounds, you know, big boots, kind of the whole thing, at mile 13, he started to have some doubts. <laughs> you know, and he said there were many seductive thoughts coming in his mind of, 
oh, maybe I don't have to do this. And there were actually, you know, other guys running and there were ATVs, some all-terrain vehicles, you know, going along and they were taking people, you know, who wanted to stop back to the rest area because clearly it was a very grueling thing. So all these thoughts were going on in his mind, you know, maybe I should stop, it's not worth it. But he kept going. And he said that the last few miles of the course, it was even running in sand. So somehow he finished. You know, he did it. And as he was telling me this story, I was just thinking, what a great example of virya. I mean, that's precisely the quality, you know, that was so strong in him. It was shoring up his determination. You know, it was giving strength to the mind. It was facing the difficulties with courage. It was all those things that allowed him to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, all coming from this quality of mind, of virya. And there was a little P.S. to the story, which kind of surprised me even more. He volunteered to do the same thing the following year. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what's striking to me, or what was striking, is that this guy, he's not a world-class athlete. It's not like he's a Lance Armstrong who won the Tour de France seven times, or is just a guy who was probably in pretty good shape. (laughs) But he had this particular factor of virya very well developed. You know, it's like that courageous determination. So it was inspiring to me. Courage doesn't mean being free of fear, and it doesn't mean being free of doubt. It means being willing to act in the face of fear, in the face of doubt. You know, the the famous artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, she had a wonderful statement about this. She said, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Again, that's the quality of virya. Evidently, she had a lot of fear about doing various things, but she didn't let it stop her from doing anything she wanted to do. So what is the force? What's the power that allows us to act and manifest in that way? You know, we see the same quality of virya, of courageous energy in the lives of so many people, both well-known and not, in the front lines of social action. Just think of the people who were very active, you know, in the civil rights movement, kind of maintaining an open heart in the face of tremendous hatred and violence, you know, and could stay there with it and could be there with it. Or as Kamala mentioned last night, you know, somebody who's tremendously inspiring, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is kind of the embodiment of grace. Been in prison, you know, under house arrest for, I think, now 17 years or so. And she holds the aspiration for freedom of millions of Burmese people. What does it take? The government would love her to leave the country. She could be free. But she chooses to stay there, you know, because she's holding this very precious aspiration 
it's, it's virya, that's the quality in the heart and mind that allows people and us to do this. These stories inspire me because we don't often challenge ourselves to extend our limits, to really see what is possible. You know, even or particularly when it's uncomfortable or difficult. Saida Utejaniya, who we've been speaking of, uh, you know, over these last days and uh, offering some of his perspective on the teachings, he said, avoiding difficult situations or running away from them does not usually take much skill or effort. But doing so prevents you from testing your own limits and from growing. The ability to face difficulties can be crucial for your growth. However, and this is a wise caution, if you are faced with a situation in which the difficulties are simply overwhelming, you should step back for the time being and wait until you have built up enough strength to deal with them skillfully. So that's an important balance to understand. Can we push the limits? Can we extend ourselves? Can we face the challenges and yet also be aware when it is overwhelming, when we do need to step back? So that takes some discerning wisdom. So virya manifests as energy, as strength, as courage, Another way it manifests in our lives and our practice, and one that's so important for us, is as the quality of perseverance or persistence. Now, courage gives us the strength, the strength to face the challenges, and it's perseverance which keeps us going. Pablo Casals, the famous cellist, you know, he's said that he still practiced three hours a day when he was 93 years old. And somebody asked him, why? <laughs> you know, 93, still practicing three hours a day. And he said, I'm beginning to see some improvement. <laughs> uh, Perseverance, you know, in the in the I Ching, one of the the refrains, perseverance furthers, and it's absolutely critical to our growth in practice. It's an aspect of virya. Suzuki Roshi, you know, who is the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and you know, a great being, had this very wonderful book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. In it, he described the quality and the way of perseverance, of constancy. He said, after you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It is not like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. 
In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there is no need to worry about progress. Just be sincere and make full effort in each moment is enough. And that's just a beautiful image, walking in the fog and getting so thoroughly drenched in the Dharma that it's impossible to dry off. And that's the way our practice unfolds through this aspect of virya, which is perseverance, steadiness. There's a story of Milarepa, who was the great yogi of Tibet, who had did a lot of bad things in his early life and realized unless he gets enlightened, he's in for some big trouble. <laughs> so he aroused the virya, you know, spent many years off in the wilderness in a cave, you know, until he came to a real perfection of mind and then spent many years teaching. And toward the end of his life, he had many great disciples and he had a the chief disciple, uh, who was waiting to get the secret transmission. You know, he got many, many teachings, but the real esoteric teaching Milarepa was keeping for the end. And so not too long before he died, Milarepa thought, okay, this is the time. So they trekked off, just the two of them trekked off up into the mountains to this very remote place so that the transmission could be really perfect. And they come to this place and they get all the situation perfect. And the disciple is waiting there very eager and anxious and open for the teachings, for the transmission of this great master. And it's said that Milarepa just bent over, lifted his robe, and showed the calluses on his butt. (laughs) That's the transmission. That's what it takes. It's not a question of a nine-day retreat. Or even many nine-day retreats. You know, Dharma practice is our life. And what we're undertaking is a tremendous journey. It's nothing less than the purification of our hearts and minds of the defilements that are so deeply rooted of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. And so you can understand how it takes this quality of virya, you know, of strength and energy and courage and perseverance and persistence. It's all wrapped up in this one mental factor that we cultivate and make strong. So there's strength, there's this shoring up quality of everything that's wholesome within us, there's courage, there's perseverance. And so this brings us to the thorniest aspect of virya. And that is the investigation or the understanding of the relationship 
between virya or energy and effort. What is effort? When is it balanced? When is it counterproductive? Now, effort really means it's the expenditure of energy to accomplish some goal. That's what effort means. But the word effort in English has so many connotations for us. We really need to examine it carefully to see how it can be applied skillfully and when it's unskillful, when it's not helping us. Effort becomes unskillful when there's a forcing of the mind. It's what I call efforting. You know, and I'm sure you all are familiar with times. Whether in our practice or in other life situations, it's, as in the famous phrase, pushing the river. You know, we're trying to make something happen. We're efforting too much. It's unskillful when in our practice there's a gaining idea. You know, a mind that's full of expectation. We're being with experience, but wanting something to happen. It's the in order to mind. You know, I'm, I'm here in order for something to occur. That's not skillful. As opposed to the skillful kind of effort in which there's an openness and a receptivity to just what is happening. So I'm going to tell you a very sad story. And many of you uh, may have heard this it's about an experience I had in practice goes back many years to my years of practice in India. And I'd been there for quite a time, and my mind had gotten into this very concentrated state. And the whole body became a body of light. And every time I sat down, it was just like sitting with a body of light. And it was great. I loved it. This went on for weeks. You know, it was just like that every time. And then I ran out of money. <laughs> and so I had to come home, back to the States, to work for a little bit, you know, to make some money. And I was working. I couldn't wait to get back to India and my body of light. Well, finally, I spent some months at home and doing all this. Went back to India, went back to Bodh Gaya, sat down in my seat, my body of light had become a body of twisted steel. That's just what it felt. It just, you know, just like that. And I spent the next two years of my practice struggling to get back to what I had been experiencing. Two years of struggling to get this body of light back. And all I was experiencing was this twist and knot and tension. I kept trying to force my mind through the body to open it up. It was the most difficult two years of my practice. It was really horrible. Finally, it took me that long to finally get that it was not about getting the body of light back. It was about opening to just what was present. That's what the practice is about. It took me two years to learn that. Finally, when I could just relax and, 
okay, this is what's happening. So then things started flowing a little more easily and the practice kept unfolding. So I share this story with you so you don't spend two years in a struggle. It is not about having or getting any experience at all, no matter how pleasant or delightful it might be. That's not what the practice is about. The practice is about letting go. It's about settling back and opening to what's there. So in all that time, I was making effort in a very unskillful way. So that's why we have to understand this application of virya very carefully. So as you're sitting, just notice, and that's why the emphasis on checking out the attitude in the mind. You know, if there's a strong agenda, that in order to mind, or if there's too much focusing, too much intensity, or holding on to the objects, you know, so that we won't lose it. If we're too tight, then we have to loosen, we have to soften, we have to open, we have to relax. On the other hand, if the mind is so relaxed that it just is continually wandering off where there's not enough strength in the mind, you know, we're just kind of lazily meandering and our, our mind's just wandering where it will, we need to notice that. And at that time, the effort needs to be strengthened a bit. We actually need to get a little more forceful in our practice. The cultivation of virya in all its various aspects of strength and courage and energy and perseverance and effort, the cultivation of virya is a very refined art. It's not something you know, that we find the perfect balance for it, and then, okay, I've got it. It's not like that at all. It's a continual adjustment. It's like, as I'm told, I've never experienced this, but on a high wire, the way people keep their balance is not by finding the balance and then, okay, I got it now. It's a continual adjusting in finding the balance. That's how we need to practice. We need to stay aware of our present circumstance and see what's needed. If it's too tight, the mind's too tight, we need to soften. If it's too loose, we need to strengthen it a bit. Now, the Buddha used the example of tuning the lute. When you tune an instrument too tight, it's not right. Too loose, it's not right. So we just keep tuning this instrument of our minds. In our meditation practice and in our daily lives, I'm sure you've noticed a wide range of energy fluctuations. This is natural. There are going to be times when we're very energetic, times when we're not. With a good understanding of virya, we can begin to work with these energy swings in a in a variety of skillful ways. So, for example, 
there are times when we might want to emphasize the courageous aspect. Right? We see, yes, this is the time. Let me push the edges. Let me see what it's like at the edge of our comfort zone. You know, it's, we, come, we become inspired to actually play at the boundaries, play at the edges of what we're comfortable with. So, for example, it might be sitting a little longer. At one point, Deepama, you know, one of our teachers from Calcutta, who was this great, great yogi, she turned to me and she said, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant sit down and get up two days later. <laughs> and I just looked at her and laughed. Because, and she turned to me and said, don't be lazy. <laughs> well, I never quite did that, but she did it. You know, and quite amazing. So it's just, we can play, it may not be two days, but, you know, sit an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, just see, experiment. It might be coming in with a resolve for a certain period of time to sit without movement. When I was practicing with Goenkaji, another famous teacher in India, he had what he called vow hours. For a certain number of hours during the day, you made the resolution not to move. Right? Let me die. I'm not going to move. Sometimes it felt like <laughs> death was imminent. It was, it was very powerful. You know, it was just that, that quality of courageous effort. Okay, let me see what happens. So we've softened things a bit. You're on the upper middle path. <laughs> If you don't feel like doing it for an hour, do it for a half an hour. Do it for 20 minutes. Do it for 10 minutes. It really doesn't matter the length of time. What matters is just experimenting with what it's like to make a firm resolution that pushes an edge. And just see what happens with it. It's powerful. It might be doing the walking meditation for longer. You know, maybe you find that after half an hour, 40 minutes of walking, you begin to get bored. Okay, time to do something else. What would happen if you walked for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours? Just, just to see. Can you see how this, this will engage kind of our practice in a very different way? It might mean, and we haven't really talked about this, but in Buddhist monasteries, yogis are all on eight precepts. And the other three, the, the significant one in terms of real virya, is not eating after the noon meal. You know, at the three-month retreat in Barian, at the Forest Refuge, um, quite a few people just decide to do that. You know, to take the eight precepts, see what it's like. Nobody starves, but it plays an edge. So it's important to understand with all of these suggestions, and you may find other edges for yourself. These are just some examples of possibilities. They all have to be done motivated by the quality of willingness and interest. It's not a should, and it's not a right. There's no right and wrong in this. It's not an obligation, or you're doing it for someone else. It's only at those times when it feels appropriate and you have the energy 
okay, this is one way of strengthening virya, the courageous aspect of it. On the other side, if the mind feels too tight, you know, there's too much efforting, or we're filled with a lot of self-judgment, or there's a kind of ambitious striving, which is another pattern, another common tendency, then we might want to emphasize the softer side of virya, the side of perseverance, the side of constancy. In Saito Utejaniya, he has some very wise words about this kind of right effort. He says, in our context, right effort means to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It is not energy used to focus hard on something. It is effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It is not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Right. So in this application of virya, strengthening of it, it's not some huge, heroic, courageous you know, effort at the edge. It's that determination, that strong intention to practice the continuity, to have that kind of constancy in the practice. Again, from Saida, you do not need strong effort to be mindful. When we are present, we become aware of what is happening. Simply reminding yourself to be in the present moment is all the effort you need. So this is another side. This is another way of strengthening this factor of enlightenment. This training in constancy, in steadiness of awareness, is particularly helpful for integrating the practice into our daily lives. So we don't get caught in this idea that the cultivation of the factors of enlightenment only happen on retreat. You know, our life is our practice, and we need to learn how to practice in a way that makes that real. The Buddha talked of attending to these factors of enlightenment. He said they are a matter of vital concern. They're not simply a hobby. Now, these factors of awakening, of mindfulness, of wisdom, of investigation, of equanimity, of virya, of energy, are a matter of vital concern. So how do we generate this feeling of spiritual urgency so that we are actually practicing with a feeling of vital concern. Now, what can we do to engender that in ourselves? There are several different reflections which can help us. And one of them was mentioned a little earlier in the retreat, and that is 
the preciousness of this human birth of ours, you know, and the rarity of our present circumstances. You know, whether we think of it in the context of many lifetimes or just this lifetime, it's quite extraordinary that all the conditions have come together that allow us to practice. Just think for a moment, you know, of the world situation and of the billions of people in the world. How few actually have the opportunity to practice in the way that we do? It is amazingly rare. Somehow, because at least in the Buddhist understanding of our own past wholesome actions, these conditions have come together. So we want to take advantage of this situation because conditions change. You know, we often lead our lives thinking that conditions will always be favorable. It's like that's kind of the delusion that we live in. But we don't know. When we look at the world, it it reveals the truth of uncertainty. You know, from wars, violence to natural disasters, or to to our own aging bodies and sickness, we don't know. So a wise reflection on this, and really taking it to heart, you know, not having it as a philosophic abstraction, but deeply reflecting can arouse this sense of spiritual urgency. Let me use the time well. In a reflection on death is another powerful reminder. It's strange that in our culture, reflection on death is, I think, often seen as being morbid or depressing, and why would one want to do that? And yet, Within the Buddhist teachings, it's one of the most powerful meditation subjects because it reminds us of what is true. You know, each day our life is just getting shorter and shorter. It's like our life is running out. How often do we think of our lives in that way? Probably not that often. Shanti Deva, who wrote Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, you know, and the Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shanti Deva. He said, Fix this firmly in your understanding. All that may be wished for will by nature fade to nothing. You know, and it's just so true. So we need to take this in. We really need to reflect on it, and it can arouse a tremendous sense of virya in us. It's said that in this reflection of the preciousness of our present circumstances, that we have arrived at a great treasure island. So what did the Buddha mean by this? That is, this treasure island that we've all arrived at is this precious human birth, and it is precious and a treasure island because it's precisely the place where we can understand 
and cultivate all the causes of happiness. Now, when we understand the Dharma, when we understand the causes and conditions for happiness and liberation, we're in a place, we're in a situation where we can actually cultivate it. And so there's this amazing treasure island that we're living on. We can cultivate every happiness. So I'd just like to close with a teaching from another of the great Tibetan masters, I think 14th or 13th century, his name was Tsongkhapa. He said, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body, it is yours this one time only. The human form is one with great difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your aspiration and make use of every day and night to achieve it. This is really a teaching of virya, of energy, of strength, of courage, of effort, of perseverance. And it's through this quality through this tremendous quality that's within us all, that as we cultivate and develop, leads us to the highest goal. Mm -hmm.